Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. In this episode, the last in our composer-focused series from November 2018, chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Zachary Oromo talks to Edward Sekerson about his countryman, Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. Hello and welcome to this Barbican podcast with me, Edward Sekerson. My guest today is the chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Zachary Oromo, and he's here to talk about his countryman, Jean Sibelius. Zachary, one of the most enduring mysteries of music is how profoundly it connects with its nationalistic roots, the landscape and ethos of the country where it was created. And as a fellow Finn, I just wondered what it was about Sibelius that speaks of your homeland. Yeah, that's always a good question and also a kind of... Um it's a question that has many sides to it, uh, but I would compare Sibelius's relationship with Finland and Finnish culture about to Janáček's relationship to his own Czech culture. So, so they both um, drew inspiration from the folk art of their respective nations. They both, I think, were influenced by the language, which means the music they wrote was influenced by the language. However, Sibelius was different to Janáček in one respect. He never ever used a single folk tune as such in his music. Mm. Never. Uh, there, there is a set of transcriptions for solo piano of folk songs, but even those seem to be written by Sibelius himself. So those folk songs don't have any, any corresponding mm. pieces in the, in the sort of folk tradition. Mm. And, uh, uh, and in Sibelius' case... Uh, he was, of course, the one who brought Finland onto the world map culturally. Uh, but he couldn't do it if he hadn't uh, sort of immersed himself in the German Germanic symphonic tradition by studying in Vienna and in Berlin, um, 
by coming quite early on under the influence of people like Brahms, Bruckner, and of course his teachers, whose names have been slightly more forgotten. Uh, yes, Sibelius, of course, means everything uh, to Finland uh, in terms of musical existence. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he's not solely and singularly a Finnish phenomenon. He didn't speak Finnish as his native language. He was a Swedish speaker who learned Finnish only when he got to know his future wife, Aino, who was uh, from a very phenophile, uh, talking about language, phenophile family, the Jarenfeld family. And, um, and of course, Sibelius had, um, had sort of gotten this great revelation of, of what folk music can really bring by listening to the rune singer Larin Paraske, who was a very famous, already elderly lady, uh, who sort of recited these hours and hours long uh, old Karelian, uh, you would call them chants or runes, um, which apparently made a really huge impression on, on Sibelius when he was able to hear them live. often credited as having um, helped Finland develop its national identity during the struggle for independence from Russia. Do you think there's much truth in that? Or uh, I mean, pieces like Finlandia and the Second Symphonies often has that layer of, 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 of meaning imposed upon it, which perhaps isn't there. I, I wonder what your view on that was. Well, my view is early on in his career, he was very much uh, a part of this movement. Uh, to, to sort of reinforce the identity of Finland to, uh, and to get rid of the Russian Empire uh, as a ruler. Uh, and he was a part of a group of artists, but none other were composers. There were the writers and painters and, and such like, um, who all had the same kind of basic foundation to their art. Uh, and I think early on Sibelius was very much a political composer. I mean, he wrote uh, pieces like... Um, the Karelia Suite, the music to the Karelia play. Uh, he wrote uh, the Jägermarsch a little bit later, uh, for which he was almost got rid of his, his life during the Civil War of 1918. Um, he wrote several pieces that uh, directly uh, took a stance on political things. On the other hand, um, he was always striving to become an absolute composer, a composer of, of music without external meanings. And I think the Second Symphony is uh, kind of... Of course, many etiquettes can be easily... Uh, many labels can be attached to it. Mm -hmm. But it is essentially a, a piece which is striving for the independence of the musical material yeah. uh, and not any extra musical sure. effects. Um, in that, um, his love of nature... And I talked about national identity. His love of nature was was well known, and that is so clear in the landscape of the music, particularly a piece like Tapula, um, which is just almost graphic in its depiction of that kind of wild, windswept 
landscape. Um, uh, in that, I suppose, he had something in common, well, perhaps the only thing in common, with Gustav Mahler, who was a pantheist at heart as well, and a nature lover. Um, and, um, uh, but how important is that, that love of nature in the music? It is very important. It's all-encompassing, I think. Mm. Uh, and he had musical associations with phenomena of nature, like he wrote in his diary whilst working on the Fifth Symphony, which was at that time a hybrid between the Fifth and Sixth. Uh, he wrote uh, Swans Migrating, Black Earth, Lots of Sordinos, for instance. Mm. And that is audible, I think, in the mm. final movement of the Fifth Symphony very much, mm. uh, which really digs deep, deep below the surface. Well, there are those, all those wonderful bass pedals in his music, you know, which are almost unfathomable. You know, they, yes. they, they, they're sunk so deep. They are roots. Yes. Like trees have roots. And, yeah. and the root systems can be hugely bigger than the tree itself. On the other hand, in the German cultural environment, mostly, Sibelius is often described as a landscape painter, and that's, I think, what he wasn't. Mm -hmm. His relation to nature in terms of music, I think, is more akin to Beethoven's in the Pastoral Symphony, for instance, uh, than to, say, Mahler's, because Mahler's pantheism was of so, on such a level that he actually... Um, I don't know. He almost, it it, it encompassed everything yes. uh, in his yes. music. Whereas with Sibelius, it's more like a sort of external viewpoint, mm -hmm. observing. There is there is often a subject observing things happening in nature, and only in Tapiola, and I think partly in the music to the Tempest. So his very last works, there is no person anymore. Mm -hmm. It's only the nature, and I think that's the way he was sort of heading to throughout you've, his music. You've talked about Finnish folklore and mythology, um, and great source of inspiration for him, the Kalevala. Um, piece I adore is Luanatar, um, for soprano and orchestra. It's a sensationally original piece, I think. Yeah, for for its shortness. Yeah. It only lasts, what, 10, 11 minutes mm. per bond. Mm. It has the makings of a really big symphonic work. And he called it a symphonic poem for soprano orchestra. And um, Lonotar is, of course, inspired by, by one of the myths in Kalevala, the creation myth, which has a lot to do with the, with the biblical creation myth, but it has some, some elements which are kind of uh, wonderfully naive and, and incredibly sort of descriptive at the same time.
Luonotar, in a way, is a key piece in Sibelius's production because he wrote it between the Third and Fourth Symphony when he was sort of getting away from this uh, Junge Klassizismus, the, the sort of young classical style, which he very much tried out in the Third Symphony, also in the Violin Concerto, uh, partly. And he was heading towards this more abstract, mm. uh, more mythical, uh, mysterious, introvert style. And, and Luonotar is kind of the, the missing link, in a way, between between these, these very different worlds. The, the core of his output, though, of course, we've alluded, we've talked about them in passing, are the, the seven symphonies. Um, and each says something different about him, the journey he's taking. Um, uh, do you... I mean, which are the most important from your point of view? Which, which do, you, do you feel closest to, in a way? I mean, it's an impossible question, because they're each individual and amazing in their different ways. Yeah, I think Sibelius invented a new technique of composition for each of his symphonies. Mm. And everything else he wrote, maybe except the string quartet, Vokesintime, and uh, some of the tone poems, he himself considered as sort of second-rate, or, or like music he wrote for living, for getting the money instantly from the publishers and all that. And of course he was cut away by the First World War as well, very much because he lost contact with his German publisher, which was on the opposite side, so he suffered a lot. I can't really single any, any of them out, actually. They're all kind of so different, and, and what I find so interesting is that, that there are seeds of, of the coming symphonies in each of them. Mm. Even in Kurlerva, which is before the first symphony, uh, you can find seeds to the fifth symphony, He's lying, laying out his stall, if you like. He's, yes, kind of... and then he's gradually throughout the symphonies reducing his his mm. kind of equipment and stall, and 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 making more economical use of the elements that he finds most uh, productive for 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 his music at at that moment. And and for instance, uh, the fourth symphony, which starts with this incredible tritone gesture. Mm. There's a very strong tritone passage in the third symphony, mm-hmm. and and so on. It kind of goes on over time. So mm-hmm. you find sort of elements that then come into floor, full flourishment in the, you, in the following you, symphony. You mentioned the fourth. It sits between the. I love the third symphony, but that kind of rhythmic impulsiveness. But it's very tight as a as a piece, and the sixth is very refined as a piece. Uh, and then you've got this dark and extraordinary world between them with a slow movement that I think, I mean, we've talked, mentioned Mahler, but if there is any comparison to be made, that, that one hears, I think, some Mahler in that slow movement. I don't know. It's just an illusion, maybe, or something. I don't actually get that impression at all you don't. From, from, my, from my point of view, no. Um, I, I think that, that Il Tempo Largo, third movement of the Fourth Symphony, it has kind of for me, it has all the elements that Mahler doesn't, and vice versa. It doesn't use the elements that Mahler uses in his slow movements, some of which are really gorgeous, like the one in the Fourth Symphony, for instance, of Mahler. Mm. But Sibelius um, tries to do something completely different. He, he sort of forms these perfect little cells of music and then expands them to something uh, massive and it can be compared only to how a tree grows out of a small mm-hmm. seed mm-hmm. 
or a, a little um, yeah, small thing becomes, elaborates itself and, and grows into this really strong structure. But the, the innate fragility of the Bold Symphony, of Sibelius, uh, is always there. I mean, it feels as though the structure is... Um, it's so well-rooted, and yet if you push it along just a little bit, it feels like it's almost falling apart. It's very fragile, and at the same time very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you think there is much more of a connection between three, four, and six than... Yeah, and yeah. even five, yeah. actually, for me. Yeah. Yes, yes. There is, a, there is a strong connection, and... When people first heard Sibelius Fourth Symphony when it was premiered in Helsinki, he reported that there were kind of strange looks. No one dared say anything. There was a sort of um, consummate applause, but not, not very enthusiastic. People didn't really know what to make of it. And, uh, and ha having that experience and then going on to write something that then became the fifth symphony is of course very understandable because that gives a, an, a sort of an occasion for a huge rapturous response mm -hmm. but the fourth really is is an enigma oh and right from the the first note yes um, it plunges you into this um, 
And, and there, there are always those moments in his music where um, it's almost as though he's suddenly lost in time and space and you don't know where it's going to go. There might be some very distilled moment with just a bassoon solo. Or yes, indeed, yeah, very bare, barren landscapes uh, where uh, nothing seems to be moving. There's just a lonely crow somewhere, maybe, <laughs> yeah. making its way through the, through the dead leaves, whatever. These associations can be endless. Yeah. But uh, as an interpreter, um, I, I can't stress, stress enough how many problems the Fourth Symphony poses on the conductor, on the interpreter of the music. Um, there are dozens of recordings which have uh, very willful solutions, but many of them don't really capture anything of the essence of the piece. And, and um, Sibelius wasn't perhaps the most precise uh, score writer. I mean, he did leave some freedom to interpret what he meant, but I think still the basic musical elements are, are very much there. And for instance, the tradition of slowing down the tempo very much at the end of the finale of the Fourth Symphony, I think, takes away the whole point, which is kind of this running out of energy mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. just stopping without making a big point of it. Maybe it was Carrie-Anne's fault that made me hear Mahler. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yes. Carrie-Anne Bernstein, yes. The, yes, those kind of... The um, two... Uh, <laughs> 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 the last symphony um, redefines the word organic, the seventh symphony. Um, and because it ends with this equivocal, the most equivocal C major in all music, it just, just kind of, a ch yes, clings on by its fingernails. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> um, I mean, extraordinarily original, but as you say, they all are um, in their different ways. Finally, Sakari, um, uh, two of his most popular works, the Violin Concerto and the Fifth Symphony, exist in two versions. Now, this is fascinating when you hear the originals, because in some ways they're more radical and more fascinating, but they ain't as good, if you like. Um, what is your take on that? Does that make sense, that kind of theory? Because sometimes composers' first thoughts... Um, are you know, and they, they they play with them, and 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 then somehow all that kind of edge and originality disappears, and it becomes more perfect. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? Yeah, things? I agree on that. I agree on that, and and it's incredibly interesting to listen to to the early versions. In terms of the violin concerto, the, the early version it's is is much more difficult to play. It's much more virtuosic, although even the final version is difficult enough, but. But uh, the first version is, it's not unplayable, but it, it's very, very, very demanding. And it's about 10 minutes longer than the, mm. than the final, final version. It has two extra cadences, for instance, quite big cadences. And I think what Sibelius wanted to really do is, is to ensure its performability and to streamline the, the form of the piece. 
which he found maybe to be a little too sprawling. So he took out all these interesting <laughs> cadenzas that uh, sound almost like a Bach solo sonata gone mad, or Isai or something, yeah. some, some virtuoso music for violin. Um, and he gained, of course, uh, in, the, in the sort of perfectness of form, but, but it's so fascinating to hear the, the early version. Uh, whereas in the Fifth Symphony, I think there is only a really big gain uh, in, in having the final version, mm -hmm. just because he invented this wonderful way of bridging the material of the first movement and the scherzo to become one movement, which I think is a key moment in, in the piece and maybe in all of Sibelius's production. He finds a common denominator between musical materials that are almost opposite to each other. That's a, it's, a, it's still a wonderful insight into how the mind was working. Yes. Um, and, and it was and such the, a, a, an unpredictable mind as well in many ways. It was. And the first version of the Fifth Symphony, it seems that all the, all the endings are very abrupt. And that's where he kind of takes over from the ending of the Fourth Symphony and, and, and makes these kind of clear-cut things that feel to us like they, they don't really lead anywhere. They just finish. I guess it's a very Finnish thing to do as well, but... Is it? Because yeah, I find that fascinating, really... those moments. Um, the end of the second movement is sort of the third symphony, the middle movement, yes. where, where it just sort of, I finished, so I'm going to stop. Bo. Bo. Yes, that's right, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's almost like recitative chords, like after having this musical discourse, you just put down the chords and it's finished. It's finito. <laughs> And uh, you know, in those terms, yes, I think that there is a kinship there mm -hmm. to the original version of the fifth. But the eloquent eloquence and the sort of great uh, vistas of the final version are still, I think, incomparable. But where does he stand in the great plan of music, do you think, and why? Well, if you look at it from the sort of Central European perspective, which Sibelius very much wanted to belong to, he is one of those very significant later Romantic era composers that had their roots in their native cultures, but that took a lot of influence from the Central European symphonic idea. I could name people like Elgar, certainly, uh, Janacek, certainly, Enescu in Romania, Szymanowski, Sibelius, for instance, who were kind of these um, people who b believed in symphony and, and in the symphony as a form and, and kind of wanted to elaborate its, its appearance make it freer, but at the same time keep the cohesion mm. and, and very much cling on to their musical roots.
thanks to Zachary Oromo and Edward Sekerson and to you for listening to this archive series of Composer Focus. This is the final episode in the series, but stay subscribed to Nothing Concrete to hear more episodes from our archive and new podcasts from The Barbican. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And, if possible, leave us a review so we can help more people discover and explore the wonder that is the arts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.